بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته We welcome you all to the night series Saviors of the Islamic Spirit Today we will be covering the life of Ahmad bin Hanbal rahmatullahi alayh Without further ado, Sheikh Sa'ad Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. <laughs> Over the last two nights, we've been able to get into the lives of individuals who went through great hardship and faced uh, great difficulty in oppositions from other individuals and other groups and just the, the, the people in general but sacrifice from themselves and sacrifice from their own comfort and sacrifice from their own lives in order to revive Islam and make it, uh, make it as close in resemblance to the time of the Islam that was practiced in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And um, we left off with uh, the Banu Umayyah dynasty and pretty much what was going to be the end of the Banu Umayyah dynasty. Now, the Banu Umayyah dynasty, if you look at the Umayyads, um, some of the practices that they engaged in was that they would belittle the family of the Prophet and they would speak lowly of the family of the Prophet and they would speak against the Sahaba and so this type of behavior really began to uh, bother many of the Muslims um, to see Sahaba be executed and, and killed really began to bother the Muslims. And you have to remember, the Muslims did have some type of moral compass that was still present. Just because some of the leaders were engaging in acts that were um, that were unbefitting of a Muslim doesn't mean that everyone, all the many people were engaging in it, not that not everyone was happy with it. So the Abbasid dynasty was almost a reaction to the Banu Umayyah dynasty, the Banu Abbas. Banu Abbas means they're from the lineage of uh, Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib. And Abbas bin Abdul Muttalib was the uncle of the Prophet from his lineage. So from the family of the Prophet, you see the next uh, you see the next dynasty form. In this time, you had some some good leaders and you had some poor leadership as well. And furthermore, one thing that you find in this time was that this was the time in which scholarship really began to flourish. Um, Imam Abu Hanifa, he lived in the Banu Abbas time period. So did Imam al-Shafi'i, so did Imam Malik, and so did Imam Ahmad. And in this time, when you see scholarship flourish, a person wrongly assumes sometimes it must have been the golden era. The reality is, is that these scholars faced a lot of difficulty and they faced a lot of opposition. And it was not easy for them by any means, nor by any stretch of the imagination 
to practice their deen and to spread the deen and to teach the deen. And there were many, uh, there were many things that would serve to be obstacles for them. Sometimes when we read, read about like, you know, the ulama and the sulaha, and we read about like the fuqaha, and then, you know, these are when the madhabs were founded, etc. We get this false idea of, the, of this golden age where everything went right. No, a lot of things went wrong. Imam Hanif, rahmatullahi alayhi, he was, prison, he was imprisoned. He was, uh, he was uh, tortured in prison. So was Imam Malik, rahmatullahi alayhi. And it was very difficult and it will always prove to be difficult for a scholar under a, under a monarchy or under any type of kingship. Because what happens is that um, you have <clears throat> absolute power going to a, an individual or a group of individuals, like a family. And then those family, those family members, when they come into leadership, they assume after a period of time, it's just it's like a spoiled behavior that whatever they say will go and they try to flex their you know political muscle and they try to impose their will upon the scholars and some scholars do bend but others refuse and if i can go into the stories of those who preceded imam ahmad it would bring us to tears in fact the story of imam ahmad should rightfully bring us to tears because here is a story of a man who by many accounts is known as the imam ahl sunnah al jamaa He's the Imam of Ahlul Sunnah and Jama'ah according to the label that many ulama give him. He was a faqih, he had his own madhab. It was the Hanbali madhab. He was a muhaddith and he had his own uh, book that he compiled. It was the Muslim Imam Ahmad. He was a, a scholar of Aqidah and uh, he had his own uh, school of Aqidah, which is the Hanbali school of Aqidah. Any science that you see, he was a master of those sciences, and he actually founded schools underneath uh, him, from him in those sciences. So now when we go into this today, it's sort, of, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of important for us to remember the following. Islam never lived in a bubble. Islam was always affected by those that surrounded, uh, by, by, by the community that surrounded Islam. And so when we look at the scholarly, um, sort of the, 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 what, what, was the, what was the situation with the Abbasid Empire? When they succeeded the Banu Umayyah, they actually became so, uh, so reactionary to the Banu Umayyah that people like Abu Ja'far and Mansur and others, they would actually kill many, many people out of revenge. Now, you have to understand how wide did the Abbasid Empire stretch? On one occasion, uh, this is this is narrated um, that Harun al-Rashid, who was one of the more well-known um, leaders in, in, in Khulafa or caliphs of the Banu uh, Abbas the Empire, he once saw a cloud. So sitting there looking at the cloud, he said to the cloud, go travel wherever you want and let rain fall from, from you wherever you want. Nowhere will your rain fall except that a portion of your, what you produce will come back to me. Meaning it will grow, it will be sold, and some of the tax will come back to him, or it will grow, and then it will actually be sent to him as meal, etc. It was just showing that how vast his empire is. Ibn Khaldun, he estimated that from the Abbasid empire, that the annual income of Harun al-Rashid, was more than 7,500 qintar. Qintar is this huge pile of gold. 
If we're going to put it into the terms that were used from hadith dinar and dirham, dinar is a gold coin. It's 70 million. 150,000 gold coins annually was what he collected as, in, as, a, as his income. And it kept increasing. When his sons Amin and Ma'moon came into power, it would increase with them as well. And so when we look at the prosperity and growth and we look at uh, what was uh, available at their fingertips, this type of well, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, great wealth causes great delusion. And this is what began to happen. So now with all this wealth, what did you have? You have, uh, you have, uh, can you tell mama that? No, that daddy sent some fish there. Um, you had a lot of lagu, a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A lot of, um, I don't want to say useless behavior. Yeah, useless or just, um, um, Lahu. What's a good way of translating lahu? Lahu. Lahu. How do you useless, vain behavior? Just for lack of better words, I can't think of a better word right now. So regardless, uh, you know, uh, the courts would be filled with you know uh, gestures, and the courts would be filled with musicians and poets, etc., just to sort of celebrate amusement their time. And the more amusement the heart gets, the more the heart becomes distracted from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the heart is getting amusement, amusement, amusement. And it's forgetting about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet he did not engage in unnecessary conversation or, or, or unnecessary amusement. And so now what you have is the, the growth of this wealth became so great that it's, it's narrated by some of the, 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 that Ma'moon, along with his family, his courtiers, the nobles, the military, the civil chiefs, the personal attendants, the bodyguards, an entire army remained as guests of his prime minister, Hassan bin Sahal, to whose daughter Ma'moon was betrothed. He was going to marry her. Hassan bin Sahal entertained the whole company for 19 days on such a lavish and gorgeous scale that even the lowliest of the king's party spent those few days like an aristocrat. The members of the king's household and chief officer of that state were showered with balls of musk and ambergris, like this, this type of sense, each wrapped in a paper inscribed with the name of an estate that they were given, and they were given a slave, and a team of horses, and robes of honor, and some other gift. The recipient then took the paper to the treasurer who delivered to him the property which had fallen to his lot. A carpet of surpassing beauty made of gold thread and, with, and inlaid with pearls and rubies was unrolled for Ma'moon. As soon as he was seated on it, precious pearls of unique size and splendor were again showered at his feet, such which was which made a mesmerizing scene on the resplendent carpet. This is Moana Shibli Normani. He's mentioning this. I mean, if you can imagine, like, what type of waste was occurring there? And when you have that disconnect between uh, the upper class and the lower class, when you have that disconnect, what eventually happens is that people are so disconnected, they forget what the general po populace needs. And the more the ruling class becomes uh, a disconnect with the general populace, and this is why if you have, for example, if you have, um, uh, did Uthman tell you? He told you about, did Uthman tell you? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you know? Okay. Oh, okay. Um, when you have this type of disconnect between the ruling class and the, and, and, and the general populace, what happens is that subsequently there's such a disconnect that they don't know how to treat them anymore. You know, the famous, uh, was it Mary Antoinette and the, and the French Revolution, when asked, why are they rebelling? Why are the people rebelling? 
oh, well, you know, they, 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 they don't have bread. She said, no, they don't have bread. Let them eat cake. The famous line, let them eat cake. She was so deluded by her wealth and her opulence that she assumed that everyone had cake. So if they don't have bread, fine. Why do they complain? Let them have cake. So when you have this disconnect between the Abbasid rulers and, and, and the lower class or even the middle class, they can't understand what's the need over there. So now this begins to grow from merely a worldly disconnect to also a religious disconnect. When you have a lot of extra time on your hands and you're not spending the deen or you're not engaging in the practical elements of the deen, then other areas begin to, uh, to sift in. Philosophy begins to seep in. Hellenistic thought begins to seep in. The influence of the Greeks begins to seep in. And when that begins to seep in, people are not practically following the deen anymore. They're not practicing the deen in any practical way, shape, or form. And so what subsequently begins to happen is that you have uh, now these thoughts come in. And people say, oh, that sounds okay. That sounds cool. Well, this is the new thing. And then, you know, that, you know always pay. I, I always enjoy this. Always pay attention when um, a new student of knowledge comes back from his studies or her studies. Always pay attention to that because I always love to see, you know, their name will be on every flyer for the next like half year because everyone is very much enamored by what does this person have to say? But well, the reality is they're saying what everyone else has to say because they all studied the same books. But you can often tell the difference between scholars and non-scholars in this regard. Because the non-scholars often pick up on these nuanced uh, conversations that the scholars know, but they just don't, they just disregard. Because one, it doesn't really hold much weight or value. And two, to get in these conversations, what does a person do? They're just going to celebrate thought. They're just going to talk about, oh, well, this sounds interesting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No benefit comes from it. If you look at like, the elders of our community, when you speak to them, they don't speak about all these high principles of philosophy and theology, et cetera. They speak about make sure you're praying, make sure you're fasting, do sulh with other people and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and die in a good state. And that's it. And in the end of the day, when every new student of knowledge who returns or every new speaker who's able to quote some Arabic and yell a little and everyone becomes very enamored with them because they have their own uh, Instagram, whatever, and their Twitter feed explodes and they have Facebook or whatever is out there. After all that dies down, everyone always goes back to the elders because old is gold. This type of, uh, this type of reality entered into the Abbasid period. And they began to entertain these types of thoughts. And the dominant thoughts now, uh, they had to be, they had to be, um, they had to be fought off. So in this time, um, the, the people of piety, when they saw immoral behaviors and thoughts, they themselves began to think that now we need to spread the deen more. And we need to fortify spiritual, uh, spiritual states more. And we need to preserve what the deen, uh, what, what exists within the deen even more. And thus you had people like Sufyan al-Thawri rahmatullah alayhi, Fudayl bin Iyad rahmatullah alayhi, Junayl al-Baghdadi rahmatullah alayhi, Ma'roof al-Karukhi rahmatullahi alayhi, Bishr al-Hafi rahmatullahi alayhi. These individuals were so set on making sure that, the, that, that and others like them, that let's not let the general populace go astray. However, and then the, the expansion of Islam made it such that you couldn't get scholars. I mean, you had scholars everywhere, but often the, the, impact, the impact of them was not able to reach all corners of the world. Now, in this particular time, two, two sciences were codified. Fiqh, people were taught how to worship Allah. In hadith, people were taught the statements of the Prophet Why were two people taught how to worship Allah? Because a lot of strange innovations began to seep in. And so they, people were taught how to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is how you worship him. 
This is what you stay away from. This is what you do. This is what necessary. This is what not necessary, etc. And people were also taught what? And, and hadith was preserved. Because people began to use hadith for their own personal gain. The Prophet said this and they would make up a hadith. And that, that's not true. But they would just make it up. Why? Because if an interesting hadith was quoted in the court of the king, the caliph would give a large amounts of money and wealth to those people who quote the hadith. And sometimes the hadith would be false. Why? Because everyone was so happy with unique uh, things being quoted, just like they are today. And so now you had this state occur, and this really began to put a lot of uh, burden upon the shoulders of the scholars and the people who are trying to rectify the situation. Enter Imam Ahmad. Imam Ahmad enters into this, this time where philosophy began to reign and Muslims began to read philosophy and they began to sort of try to take Islam and theology and the idea of belief in Allah and they try to fit it within Hellenistic thought. See, it's not a problem for a Muslim to study philosophy. It's a problem when a Muslim says, well, this is philosophy. How can I fit Islam into it? This is where deviance grows into. Deviance grows into because people make sense of something. They try to fit Islam into that. They say, well, this makes sense. So let me make Islam fit into it. Islam doesn't have to fit in what you and I think is correct. Allah knows it's correct. Allah made it correct. Allah established its correctness. And then now we practice our deen based upon it. So if a person's like, logically speaking, how does it work that a prophet was taken uh, from his home in the middle of the night and traveled to, to Jerusalem and to the heavens and back all within one night? Who cares what logic has to say? We were, never, we were never subservient to logic in the first place. Yes, our deen has room for logic. And I'm not saying a person should be irrational. But at the same time, if a person always tries to base things based on logic, then they're going to come to a point where they're just going to disregard deen altogether. There is logic. There is uh, breath and room for discussions of understanding and, and rationalizing, etc. But if you're always going to try to take other frameworks and try to fit Islam into those frameworks, it won't work. It won't work. And this is what happens when philosophy comes into play. You have frameworks that are established externally. You try to put Islam into there. Imam Ahmad, when he comes into the situation, He is born in Baghdad in the month of Rabi'ul Awal in 164 after Hijrah, 780 after uh, the, in the Gregorian era, era, sorry, in the uh, common era, I should say. 164 is about 63 years after the passing of Umbar Abdul Aziz. And I can't remember exactly when, uh, when, uh, when um, I'll just look, Hassan Basri, rahmatullahi alayhi. He passes away in 110. I was going to say 121, so I've been off. 110. So this is about uh, six. Uh, this is about uh, about 54 years after he, they pass away. So a bit of a gap. In this gap, already things begin to go awry, but other scholars are trying to keep things up. Um, he was from Shaban. He's Shaybani, and he was someone who. Um, his grandfather migrated from the area of Iran, of Khurasan. And when he migrated, he was actually appointed the governor of Sarakhs. And this is under the rule of the Banu Umayyah. Yet despite that fact, he still had a deep love for the family of the Prophet And he used to be very much sympathetic to the cause of the family of the Prophet so when uh, the Abbasids would come into play, you would see already that family was embedded and endowed with love for the family of the Prophet and for the Sahaba anhum in general. When he passes away, um, um, and, and he loved the idea of having the Banu Hashim become the leaders of the, of the Ummah. When he passes away, um, 
Um, um, um, as now we look further. When, when Imam Ahmad when his father passes away, we're looking there. Um, his mother migrates and she goes to Baghdad. And they're born there, and they're, he's not. He's uh, he's born there. He's not born in the most comfortable situation. But his mother was very very careful. What to make sure that he was given a good uh, education. And this is the first lesson. If we don't go out of our way to provide education for our children, any type of education, not researching to merely religious sciences, but namely religious sciences, then people will go out of their way to educate our children. Now you're thinking, who's gonna go out of their way to educate our children? What do you think social media is? Just modern education for children. What do you think YouTube is? It is modern education for children. Children are constantly being educated by the different uh, images that, that, that fill up the, the, the screen. Many children can quote and sing song upon song upon song before they can recite their first surah of Quran. Why? Because they've been educated in it. They know about Christmas and Santa Claus and all these things before they have any understanding of Eid. Why? They've been educated in it. So education is constantly taking place by, be it by us or by someone else. And Imam Ahmad's mother, rahmatullah alayhi, she, and this is huge. If you look at any person within deen, any person within deen, you see that there was a strong woman, uh, female figure there. And this is why it's so important to marry people of piety. I'm speaking to the men specifically right now. Why? Because they will be the mother of your children. And you might be a two-bit hack that turns into nothing of benefit for the world. But the female may be someone of influence for her children. And thus Imam Bukhari, who had, a, who had a great father, a man of piety, who made sure that they were always uh, fed and, uh, and, and aided and fueled through halal only, father passes away. Imam Bukhari is blind at a young age. It is the deep care of the mother for the child and her excessive dua that causes what? the child to grow and to regain his vision. And you look at anyone, Imam al-Shafi, his father was out of the picture very young. He passed away. His mother was the reason. Imam Malik, his mother pushed him towards going to study. So you constantly see that there. So education is key. And the first murabbi or murabbiya is the mother. And if a person looks at the Prophet ﷺ being Nabil Ummi, Ummi has two meanings. One is Ill being illiterate and two being of the mother. Meaning that even if a person is uh, physically illiterate, if they are Ummi of the mother, they will have given the proper tarbiyah in, in, in raising, in upbringing for them to have enough fertile soil within them to take in good education. And so his mother went out of her way to make sure that he began to uh, that he began to study. And they were not wealthy; they were quite they were poor. And because they were poor, he also had to become uh, had to use his ingenuity, and become industrious and become clever in the way he he lived. And this is the second lesson. The second lesson is despite all the wealth any of us may have, and we live in a time in which the middle class can be wealthy. Despite whatever wealth we have, and we're wealthy, I can just turn on a light without having to light a lantern. I can, you know, um, I can I can communicate. I don't know where you, you all are sitting. I have no idea where you all are sitting. But I can communicate with you from the, the comfort of my home. And we can exist in this global uh, Muslim village. We have the, 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 the excesses of luxury at our fingertips. Now, sometimes when that happens, children become spoiled. 
So even if we are people of wealth, it's important that we restrict the, 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 the engagement of a child and the, 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 uh, the indulgence of a child within wealth. Sometimes parents, because they're working so hard, they try to make up for their lack of presence by throwing money at their children. And now the child gains no relationship with the parent and the child gains a deep love for money. So it's 0 for 2, right? They're batting 0 for 2 at that, mo at that, at that moment. Imam Ahmad's mother, rahmatullahi alayha, she was very, very keen to make sure that he gained knowledge despite the resources. And sometimes we should consider restricting resources. I'm not saying make our children starve. Saying restrict resources. Every few days in Ramadan, we don't have to have 30 pieces of food items at the table for iftar. One day, have your kids only break uh, fast with food and water. Two or three days, have uh, dates and water, and that's it. And then let them have a simple one, one, you know, one platter dinner. The Prophet never, to what I'm aware of, had multiple platter dinner, meaning that there was like two curries in the table or anything of that nature. So have them go through that once in a while. Have them fast some days. Have them receive, instead of one Eid, instead of getting gifts, have them take whatever total amount of money they would have receiving gifts. And rather than get, buying gifts, say, this is what I want to give the poor. Have them buy that, package it, and go walk, go to an orphanage and deliver it with their own hands. Let them learn what it means to separate from wealth, but feel that internal fulfillment. Imam Ahmed's mother did that for him. And so it's mentioned that he became resolute. His nafs, he was able to restrain it. He became patient. And when he was young, he began to study. And he memorized Quran at a very young age. And he became a person of literature and a person who was solid in writing. And again, going back to yesterday's point, we cannot become illiterate and uneducated. Our Prophet, despite the fact that he could not read or write, was a person who was extremely literate in his speech. Literate, literate. Literate, right? I took your habit of saying literate. Literate. Imam Ahmad rahmatullahi alayhi, furthermore, he was a person of wara and taqwa. He was extremely pious, extremely pious. His uncle, sorry, his uncle worked for the government. He held a, a post within Baghdad. And when his uncle used to send uh, different messages through messengers to different uh, leaders of the city, officials of the city, he once handed over some of these messages to Imam Ahmed to deliver uh, to, a, a, to deliver to a messenger, to a courier. Rather than giving them to a courier, Imam Ahmed went to a, uh, 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 went to, um, a river and threw all of those messages into the river. Now, it's not like ink that we have today, even though that would run as well, but, you know, handwritten ink that immediately becomes, it dissipates in the river. So he threw them all in the river. Why did he throw it in the river? Because he was afraid that as governors or as officials, they often speak about secrets of the community and people, and he didn't like that type of backbiting occurring. This is, this is, he's young at this point. Furthermore, uh, when he was an apprentice in, in, in such office, many wives would come to him. Now, what type of wives were these? These were wives whose husbands were mujahidun. So the wives would come and their husbands would have been away for a period of time. And the lack of presence of the husband leaves a certain type, part of that marital uh, relationship unfulfilled. So when they came, um, um, they would come and they would have their letters read out loud to them. 
by Imam Ahmad, and then they would uh, they would or, they would orate, they would dictate the letter to be written. Imam Ahmad would uh, oblige them; he would do so. But if he ever considers anything to be undignified or to be against Sharia or go against his own sense of modesty, he would refuse to write it down or even listen to it. I mean, you see, you today who go search those types of uh, information on the internet, etc., he would not let it reach his ears. Despite whatever a normal youth would, would, would gain from it, he refused to take that from it. And thus, um, um, a man named Haytham bin Jamil, who was a person of great uh, firasa and, and great insight, he said that if this young man re remains alive, he will become a model for all people. If this young man comes alive, he will remain. A bit, he will become a model for all people. Imam Ahmad rahmatullah he used to love hadith, and he actually began to study uh, hadith from Abu Yusuf rahmatullahi alayhi. And then he studied from others, Haytham bin Bishr rahmatullahi He also studied from Abdul Rahman bin, uh, bin Mahdi, Abu Bakr bin Ayash. These were stalwarts of hadith of his time. Excuse me. And when he would want to leave his home for studies early in the morning, sometimes his mother would say, can you at least wait till later in the morning? Now, I want you to guess, what is she talking about here? You know, mothers, they want their children to, to rest properly. So maybe a child wakes up and the mother's like, just sleep a little more and go a little later to exercise, whatever the case may be. So maybe what would a mother say? It's Fajr, pray Fajr, go back to sleep. What would his mother say? His mother would say, you're going to go study hadith, fine. Can you at least wait till Fajr time comes in? Wait till Fajr time comes in. He wanted to leave in the darkness of the night in the barakah of Tahajjud to go study hadith. So can you at least wait for Fajr time to come in? And, you know, this is a habit of people of success. One of my friends, um, Sheikh Usher, Hafiz Usher from uh, Michigan, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned his name, but I did, so it is what it is, okay? He became Hafiz at a young age. Mufti Rabbani was his teacher. Mufti Rabbani made him Hafiz. Uh, um, Allah made him Hafiz through Mufti Rabbani, I should put it that way. Sheikh Usher's grandmother used to really push that he pray to Hajjid. And she used to sort of force him to pray to Hajjid. And so what that did was, one, at a very young age, it established that routine within him. But why? She especially wanted to preserve the Qur'an that he memorized. So he was constantly doing that in Tahajjid. What happens? Barakah in that time, great action, etc. Alhamdulillah, his Qur'an is solid right now. And there's other people like that as well. Let's just take a non-religious source or example. Mahmoud, uh, Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, who uh, formerly known as Chris Jackson, who's now is in his 50s and he plays in that basketball tournament called the Big Three or something like that. He recently visited our school when we were open, MCC Academy, just a few weeks before it shut down because of COVID. And he was saying, our, he was telling us his story. I did a lot of research on him because he was going to come visit. And I wanted to, you know, be prepared with questions and also for our class to understand who was coming. His story is interesting because around the age of 10, 10 years old, that's like fourth grade, fifth grade, fourth to fifth grade, that time. <clears throat> he, his father, he never met his father. His father left them very early on. And his, his mother and his brothers and he, they lived in absolute squalor, like the depths of poverty. And so he thought to himself, at the age of 10, I need to figure out a way to take my family out of this state. So his mother would leave for work before 5 o'clock. So before, she had to be at work by 5. So before 5, she'd be out the door, 4.30, whatever the case may be. He would wait for her 
to, he would wait to hear the door close. He would lace up his shoes and he would dribble all the way to the basketball court and he would begin to play and shoot and play and shoot and play and shoot and practice so he could one day become a professional, which he did become one of the greatest three-point shooters and free throw shooters within our uh, National Basketball Association history. Um, and a strong Muslim, which is more important. He converted, uh, um, I think, in his final year of college, his first year of uh, his second, first year of college, one of the two. Uh, it was, I think, his final year of college before he entered the NBA. Anyway, um, um, he he took advantage of that time, and so now he's developing himself despite that time. That he's probably tired. It's cold. He said sometimes his hands would be frozen. He would run it under hot water. It'd be raining. He'll just go the slush to the rain. In that time, Barak in his life, and he says, you know, Fajr is easy for him now because he made that time such a valuable piece of time in his life. And so um, now he studied in Baghdad and he leaves for Basra. He studies in Basra. He goes to Hijaz, Mecca, Medina. He studies in Yemen, studies in Syria. He studies in, the, in all these different places. And as he begins to study, he meets a great man. This man's name is Muhammad bin Idris al-Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi. Who is that? That's Imam al-Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi. He studies under Imam al-Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi. And he, by the time when he studies Imam al-Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi, I'm trying to do the calculation in my mind based upon the dates that's given here. He's in his early 20s. He's about 23 years old. When he met Imam al-Shafi'i, he began to study the fiqh of Imam al-Shafi'i, rahmatullahi alayhi. And... He, Imam Ahmad became so proficient in the madhab Imam Shafi that Imam Shafi himself used to depend on Imam Ahmad's knowledge. And he used to often ask Imam Ahmad to enlighten him about certain hadith and their authenticity. So look at this child. He's 23 years old. That's what, 16 years younger than, no, that's 23 Islamic years. So that's 17 years younger than I am. And he's already someone who Imam al-Shafi is looking to for assistance in developing his madhab. And now he travels, he goes to Iran, and he goes and he studies under scholars there. And he mentions that um, he wanted to go study there. But what held, what held him off from study, held him back from studying with Jarir bin Abdul Hamid is that he didn't have money enough to go there. And he said, even if he had like 90 silver coins, he would have left for Ray and go studied over there. And so he, he was studying and becoming who he became, even despite the minimal nature of his resources. And this is the next lesson. He was not a complainer. He didn't say, oh, well, I didn't do well. I tried and I failed. The lesson is never try. That was not the way he approached life. If something went wrong, if life gives you lemons, what do you do? Sorry? What do you say? What do you say? You make what? You did say something. You're lying now. I heard you whisper it. But you said something, right? You didn't say anything? But you said something. Yeah. So Mike, life makes lemons. What do you do? You go to the local market and sell it and make money off of it. Why make lemonade? You just need to drink that and then not have anything left over. So anyway, Imam Ahmad um, he he did eventually travel. He studied under... Um, 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 he, he studied under uh, various luminaries. I'm just going to begin to uh, skip some of these things because we have to go into some of the tests that he underwent. Um, he was in uh, Mecca al-Mukarramah with Yahya bin Ma'in, and they met Abdul Razak bin Ibn al-Humam. 
when they met him, Yahya bin Ma'in was, he knew Imam Abdul Razak bin Humam. And so he greeted him and he told him this is Imam Ahmad. And he, so he also requested that they have some time to learn hadith from him. When, when Abdul Razak left, Imam Ahmad told Yahya bin Ma'in that there's not any benefit for them to take advantage of Shaykh's presence in Mecca and listen to hadith from them. And Yahya bin Ma'in wanted to stay um, and take advantage of it. But Imam Ahmad refused to listen to hadith from him. And he left for, for Yemen. And he said, I would be ashamed before Allah if I break the journey undertaken with the intention of learning hadith, I will go to Sana'a and attend the Shaykh's lecture there. And after the Hajj, he went to Sana'a to learn hadith, handed down through Zuhri and, and Ibn Musayyib and Abdul Razak. He didn't want to lose on the opportunity of gaining maximum benefit at any period of time. So now people begin to know him. He has high notoriety. He is a, a uh, he, Imam Shafi said about him, I've never seen anyone like this man. And when Imam Ahmad became so proficient and so advanced in the Shafi fiqh, he came to a point where he realized that the, he held some disagreements with Imam Shafi'i. And so um, he actually broke away from his madhab respectfully and began his own madhab. And we know about Imam Ahmad when he was leaving Baghdad, Imam Shafi said, I'm, 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 the Imam Shafi said when leaving from Baghdad, I'm leaving, I'm leaving in Baghdad when there's no jurist or, or person more pious or greater than Ahmad bin Hanbal. Now, Ahmad bin Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi, he begins to teach at the age of 40. Now, this is the next lesson. And please listen to this carefully. It's an important lesson for me to say, I'm 40 right now. I began to give speeches and lectures not like just high school khutbas, but like, you know, on the quote-unquote speaker chain and traveling to different states. And I was about 17 or 18 years old. I maybe mean, not 17, maybe 18 or 19 years old. 19 years old, I think would be more accurate. I'm 39 right now, so 20 years ago about. Traveled to different states and gave talks and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Many things, and I think my father can attest to this. I know different people can attest to this as well. Many opinions of mine have changed over time. And one of the main reasons they've changed over time is due to the fact that age has kicked in. And with age and wisdom, a person begins to recognize where they are faltering and where they are being too staunch and stern and where they need to be more open, etc. For those young scholars who have returned, and maybe you're not listening right now, and you don't need to listen, because I technically don't consider myself a scholar based upon what my uh, principal told me. He said that once I graduate, which was in 2015, that I'll need 10 years if I'm an excellent student, and I wasn't, of self-study and, and learning from others and, and, and community involvement to be considered a scholar. 15 if I was an average student or 20 as I was <clears throat> a lower tier student. So I have 15 more years of self-study, which I rarely engage in anyways, probably have 30 more years before I can be considered a scholar. But oftentimes we see people return back from overseas and they hit the speaker circuit. <clears throat> spend some time under elders. Spend some time with people who have tested the playing field and know what it is like to be out there speaking and interacting with people. Scholars come back, they're on their soapbox and they begin to speak fire and brimstone and everyone gets excited. But a lot of people get turned off and not a lot of quality or depth remains. Go sit with the seniors. Don't teach right away. Or if you have to teach, teach some of the introductory subjects and go sit with the senior ulama. <clears throat> or do like, for example, one of my teachers, Mona Afzal, 
who's studied in Darulum Zakaria, he's one of the most brilliant people I've been told from the people who are in Darulum Zakaria. They say from their own teachers, um, who was it? Uh, the Sheikh uh, Rada al Haq, uh, the Sheikh al Hadith there, wrote about him in his autobiography. Mana Afzal, he didn't do ifta once he graduated. He just stayed in the khidmah of Sheikh Rada al Haq for one year, just to stay in his khidmah and learn from the company of people. So if you're one of these new, you know, you're hitting the speaker circuit and giving khutbah, and this is one thing I loved about Zambia, only ulama give khutbah. The regular populace not give khutbah. And I'm not trying to bring the regular populace down. And I'm not considering myself a scholar either. But there's a place for everyone. And I believe that ulama, sometimes their place is compromised in our society because one, a lot of mistakes that we as graduates make ourselves. But two, just because we're always looking for the new greatest thing. So ulama, Spend time, especially if you're younger, with individuals who studied. Learn from them. Listen to them. Not people like me who may be 40 by Gregorian age, or Islamic age, excuse me, but have only been out of mothers for five years. People who've been out in the community for 20, 30, 40 years. Imam Abu Hanifa, he tried to teach uh, in the absence of his teacher. When his teacher came back, he knew right away that I am not ready to teach. People are given, the prophets are given profit at 40 for a reason. So let that maturity come in. Spend some time, not saying don't benefit, don't do khidmah of the community, but spend time also with the elders and learning from them and sitting with them and gaining that color, have them painted upon you. And that I felt was just a very important lesson I wanted to give. Now let's continue. Now Imam Ahmed, he began to study hadith and his lectures were widely, widely attended. We know that one of the, Imam Zahabi quotes one uh, from one of the students uh, and contemporaries of Imam Ahmad that have not seen the poor and lonely shown more deference anywhere than the lectures of Imam Abu Abdullah, meaning Ahmad bin Hanbal, who used to be attentive to the poor and different to the affluent. <clears throat> Excuse me, affluent, affluent, not affluent, affluent. He was a man of ample forbearance and never hasty, displayed great humility and tranquility, and sublimity hovered over him. After Asr prayed, he used to arrive for his gatherings in which legal rulings were offered, but remained silent until he was asked. And, you know, so many times we see people always try to hit the, the, the rich crowds. Or can I get the highest honorarium? Who will drive me in the nicest crowd, a car, etc.? No. Imam Ahmad gave deference. And he gave uh, preference. Zaid, is that for me? My mug is there. <clears throat> for the people who are poor. And never overlook them. These are people who are simple. You know, Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Hafizullah, he mentioned something very interesting. He's like, you, you and I, we interact, not an exact quote, but a rough quote, with the awliya on a regular basis. But we don't recognize them. They're the sweeper on the street or the seller in the market or the random person that we don't pay any attention to. But Allah knows their, their level and their position. Imam Ahmad never overlooked anyone's position. And there's some really cool stories with this that unfortunately we're not going to have time for today because I spent too much time in sort of the introductory part, part of this. This is still the introductory part. I haven't even got to the Zakhmukhan. I haven't really got to the uh, crux of our discussion today. He, after gaining some wealth in life, he used to give a lot to the poor. And he never accepted a gift or a present from, from, uh, from, from people of official position. One time, his, his sons would ask why he refused. And he said that, look, these gifts are not haram. However, he, when explained that they were perfectly halal, he refused to accept these gifts because uh, it was 
higher in quality, in higher in uh, taqwa to do so, in higher in care, excuse me, to do so, to be careful. And he would, um, he would often say that the entire Muslim world became a morsel in his hand of any Muslims who fed another Muslim, such would not be ex- 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 extravagance, excuse me. That if the, to feed and give to others was not extravagance. And he was also very kind. On one occasion, a man abused him. But soon he came back to Imam Ahmad and started begging for his forgiveness. He verbally abused him. So Imam Ahmad said that he'd already forgiven the man before the man left the place. And this is a gateway to what happens later in his life. You know, Imam Ahmad was tried with one of the greatest tests. These caliphs in the time of the Abbasids, they actually loved Imam Ahmad. They loved Imam Ahmad uh, greatly. He was a simple man. Uh, It's said about him, I've never seen someone like Imam Ahmad. It seemed as as if his heart was a repository of all knowledge uh, of human beings, past and present. He brought forth whatever he wanted and and he didn't share whatever he wanted. And he was a person one time mutawakkil billah sent Imam Ahmad a donkey upon which was loaded gold pieces, but he refused to accept any of it. He refused to accept any of it. And so, um, um, and then the, the story is interesting because out of he didn't want the mutawakkil to feel any type of uh, offense. So he said, okay, leave some of it in the corner. But then he sent uh, it to be given away at that point as well. And so Imam Ahmad, this simplicity, people loved him. But what happens? There's a group called the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila are like the Muslim philosophers, the, 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 the deviant Muslim philosophers, I should say. They try to use logic to explain everything. That's what, that was their big thing. They try to explain logic to explain everything. And so these individuals, they began to spread a lot of false beliefs. From the false beliefs they spread, you know, they would say things like, um, you know, um, a, a major sinner would not be would not enter into paradise. They weren't like the Khawarij who say they would enter into hell, but they would say they would enter manzila uh, bil a place between the two places, and they would say like uh, they, they they would um um um. What else would they say? They would say, why am I figuring some of their thoughts? Uh, they were rationalists. I'm, I'm sorry, but they have a lot of deviant beliefs. Oh, oh, here's a main one. They said Quran is a creation of Allah. It's not the word of Allah. That statement takes a person out of Islam. Belief, that belief. This Quran is part of Allah. It's not a, it's not a creation of Allah. Allah the, yes, the book, the mushaf that we have today, that's a creation. But the words there are from Allah. And this... Harun al-Rashid did not follow this, but Ma'mun al-Rashid, he was heavily influenced by the Mu'tazila. And so he began to adopt this position. And the Mu'tazila, for some reason, they, they became the official belief uh, system and theology of the Abbasid Caliphate for a period of time. Anyone who did not follow this were imprisoned and they were abused. In Imam Ahmad, this is what happened to him. Now, the Caliph loved Imam Ahmad. And he did not want to see him harmed. So he would constantly go and tell him, just accept this, just accept this. And he refused. And he would debate people openly about this and refuse this openly. And what happened was he began to become, uh, he began to be tortured in prison. On one occasion, um, 
when he he um he was brutally flogged, he was whipped brutally. And he used to say that I cannot pardon the innovator in religion, but aside from him, anyone, everyone who took part in my victimization has been pardoned by me. Meaning what? The one who says that Quran is a creation of Allah, I can't forgive that. That is destroying the deen. But anyone who is forced by him to like beat me and imprison me and flog me and harm me, I'll forgive them. And when asked why, he would say, what, what good does it do me? if a Muslim uh, were, were put into hell because of me? Like, how does that benefit me? And in one occasion, uh, and I'll go to some of those stories now. So what happens is Imam Ahmad, rahmatullahi he is defending the view of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah. Imam Ahmad was forced to arrive in, in Mecca. And you know, in, not Mecca, in, in Baghdad. And you know, some of the scholars, they went to Imam Ahmad and they said, just, just say that you say, just say it by your tongue. Don't believe in your heart. But say by your tongue that Quran is a creation. Allah will overlook it. Don't worry about it. And Imam Ahmad refused. 30 scholars were brought forth. Ma'amun Rashid brought, gave an order to the governor of Baghdad to present before him uh, seven hadith scholars who go against this edict of Quran being creation of Allah. When they came, Imamun questioned their, their belief. They said what they had to say. And then um, when came, Imamun questioned them about their beliefs and regarding the creationness of the Quran, each of them, either, either whatever the reason may be, end up believing what Mamun Rashid said. So they went to the public and the public still didn't agree with them. The public still said, no, Quran is not creation of Allah. Then, um, so they thought, let's, let's turn our view, let's turn our attention towards Harun al-Rashid. If we get, not Harun uh, Ahmad bin Hanbal, if we get him to change, then what's going to happen is that um, um, uh, the, 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 the general public, so Mamun al-Rashid, what does he do? He writes a letter. And he, he forces, everyone has to believe in the, the Mu'tazili view. And he would get really upset if people did not agree. He wrote a letter to one of his governors, Ishaq bin Ibrahim, who said that, look, these scholars, they don't agree with you. So he said, take these scholars, these 30 scholars, and execute them. Execute them, kill them. Now, only four scholars remain. Ahmad bin Hanbal, Hassan bin Hamad al-Sajjada, Ubaidullah bin Umar al-Qawariri, and Muhammad bin Nuh. And they said that we are not going to change. They were thrown into prison. Imam Ahmad is, he is flogged. He's whipped. And he's hurt. Mamun al-Rashid, he dies in this period of time. Mu'tasim Billah takes over. And he takes over on the same scale. He was instructed to follow faithfully in the footsteps of his predecessors. Especially what? This particular thing. Quran is the creator, creation of Allah. So he did so. And when he does so, Imam Ahmad begins to get abused. The, 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 the caliph brings forth Imam Ahmad. He asks him, tell, tell me your state. He's brought into Baghdad wearing four iron shackles on his legs. He was questioned and questioned. He refused to give up. For four days, he's questioned. They told Imam Ahmad that uh, they would not execute him. Rather, execution's too easy. We have to beat you, we'll beat you in the dungeon. 
And in the dungeon, you won't even be able to see light. So this playing psychological games with him. He still refused. Then Imam Ahmed was whipped 28 times. A, a new ex executioner's begin was brought in. He was given two whips, two lashes. After each uh, uh, stroke, Imam Ahmed said, bring something to me from Quran or Sunnah and I will accept it. Meaning what? You're beating me. Give me proof from Quran and Sunnah. When you give me proof, I'll accept what you have to say. And they had nothing to do. Imam Ahmed himself says, when I reached the a place known as Bustan Gates, a horse was brought before me and I was told to get in. Nobody helped me horse and with heavy chains uh, locked to my legs, I was forced to climb in, uh, climb on. I made many attempts. I barely managed someone to save myself from falling down my face in those attempts. When I reached Mu'tasim's palace, I was thrown in a small room that was bolted shut. There was no lamp in the room. In the middle of the night, when I stretched my hands to touch the dust for purification before the prayers I intend to offer, I found a dish of water and a basin. I did wudu and then on the next and I, and I began to pray tahajjud. Even in this time, it does not forget his, his, you know, look, in hardship, he's praying. In ease, we don't pray. SubhanAllah. There's, anyway, continuing. The next day, a, a, a person brought me to the caliph. The chief justice, whose name was Ibn Abi Dawood, and a number of his courtiers, along with Abdul Rahman al-Shafi'i, Abu Abdul Rahman al-Shafi'i, were present there. Before I was brought to the caliph, two people were beheaded. Two people were beheaded. I asked Abu Abdul Rahman al-Shafi'i if, if he remembered what Imam Shafi'i had said about Tayammum. On this, Abu Dawood, Ibn Abu Dawood remarked, look here, this man is about to be beheaded and he's making legal inquiries. SubhanAllah, even in the situation where death is staring him in the face, what does he do? And this is Imam Abu Yusuf, he passed away a similar state. He passed away, his last act of worship was what? Learning a, a principle, a masala, or teaching a masala with Imam Muhammad bin al-Shaybani regarding hajj. Oh man, we're almost an hour in, I have to end. So uh, Ibn Abi Dawood would say uh, that, look at this man. He's about to be beheaded, he's asking about fiqh. Mu'atasim told him to come forward, uh, asked me to come forward. I reached qu uh, quite close to him. And he told me to sit down. I was very tired because the heavy chains my body. After I'd taken some rest for a while, I requested the caliph permission to ask something. The caliph granted me permission to pose the question, so I, I, I asked. I want to know, what was it to which the Prophet of Allah summoned us? The caliph was silent a few seconds and then replied, to bear witness Allah and that there's no God but him. So Imam Muhammad said, I bear witness to this. I said and continued, your great-grandfather, Ibn Abbas, now he's calling upon their prophetic lineage. Your great-grandfather, Ibn Abbas, who's the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi has near the deputation of Abdul Qais came to the Prophet They inquired about the contents of the faith. The Prophet said, do you know its reality? They replied, verily, Allah and his messenger know best. Thereafter, the Prophet explained, it consists of bearing witness there's no God but Allah. And Muhammad Sallallahu is his messenger. Praying the prayers, giving the zakah, Keeping one fifth of the spoils of war to the to the state means to the Prophet how it's used by, by the Muslim government. I would not have interfered with you if my predecessor had not laid his hands on you, said the caliph. Meaning what? He's saying that look, I do all these things. Why are you flogging me? So uh, Mu'atasim says, look, I feel horrible about this. But my my predecessor Ma'mun, he told me to do this. Then turning to Abdul Rahman bin Ishaq, he remarked. Didn't I order you to give up this affair? I said, Allah, Ahu Akbar, it is a, um, uh, um, 
uh, it is a blessing unto the Muslims. The, the Khalifa then said, watch the scholars, including Abdul Rahman, to join in, in debate with Imam Ahmad. So Imam Ahmad then says, I answered all the questions one by one until Mu'tasim exclaimed, Ahmad, may Allah have mercy on you. Think again of what you say. They couldn't get him to, they couldn't, they couldn't confuse him. Everything they can try to confuse him with, he got it right. And then uh, he said, think what you say. And he said, Amil Mu'mineen, show me something from Quran and Hadith and I'll accept whatever you have to say. And he would say, if you could simply just say yes to me. Mu'tasim does not want to abuse him. He loved him. But if you would just say yes to me, I would free you with my own hands. Then call upon him with my nobles and army chiefs. Now remember this in particular for what happens after Mu'tasim's death. Once he intervened saying ah, Imam Ahmed, to Imam Ahmed, Ahmed, I feel compassion for you and love for you as much as my own son, Harun. What, what do you say? My reply to such was, I will accept if you bring forth something from Quran, the book of Allah or the Sunnah of the Prophet. So I send them. At this, the Khalifa got tired and then ended the session. On the third day, I, was asked for, I asked for a cord to fasten my chain for I had a premonition something would happen on that day. He knew some, some insight made him feel that something bad's going to happen today. So he fastened his trousers very tightly. When I arrived at the court, I found the dignitaries of the empire ranged on the right and left of the caliph's seat. Hundreds of men in splendid uniforms, some with drawn swords, others with whips standing around the caliph. But a number of religious scholars present on the previous two days were absent. When I reached near Mu'atasim, he ordered me to sit down and to contend with the people present here. I answered the questions they asked till it got late. Then I was taken aside. The caliph said something to them, who left the court, and I was again brought before Mu'atasim. He said, Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on you. Accept what I say, and I'll free you with my own hands. I gave the same answer I gave the day before, and they grew. he grew angry and ordered, take hold of his arms and dislocate them. I want to show you something. It's a little disgusting. I want to show you something right now. Look right here. I, you see this? This is my shoulder. I tore it when I was used to wrestle. I could actually pop it out of place. You see it right here? I'm going to stop here because I don't want to do it completely because it hurts. It is one of the most painful things to pop your shoulder out of place. I've done it on multiple occasions and then pop it back in. It hurts like crazy. Why does it hurt? Because the plate, because once you pop it, because it's not a socket, it's a plate in a joint, everything gets ruined there forever. And I've had shoulder surgery on it. It just, it's very, very painful. It slips out sometimes. So, Imam Ahmad, they ordered, he ordered, dislocate his arms. After this, Mu'tasim sat down in a chair near me and called the executioners. Each gave two lashes while the caliph bade them hit him harder, hit him harder. After I took 19 lashes, Mu'tasim addressed me again. Who's ever like taken a miswak or like a twizzler, you know, the candy and hit yourself with it? Ever do that before? It hurts. This is a lash of a whip. It penetrates, it cuts the skin open. Then afterwards, he said, Ahmed, why do you want to get rid of your life? Allah knows that I have great regard for you. One general, Ujayf bin Ambasa, struck me with the hilt of a sword and exclaimed, you want to overcome them all? Another man remarked, don't you see the caliph is standing before you? A third man said, leader of the faithful, you are fasting and you're fasting and you stand in the sun. Mu'tasim repeatedly, repeatedly beseeched me to acknowledge his doctrine, but each time I repeated the same as earlier. And then they, and he became angry and he ordered that they hit him harder until I became unconscious. When I came to, I found that I had been unchained. Someone present told me, we pulled you down your face and then trampled upon you. However, I did not know what they had done to me. He went unconscious and they were so angry that they dragged him by the face and they trampled upon him. They stepped on him. Imam Ahmad did not look. 
how quickly we budge, how quickly we budge. And I'm not trying to say in the COVID era that we should all be in the masjid prayer. I'm not saying that. You know, something goes wrong. We fear for our Islam. Shave your beard, take off your hijab, do this and that. People might know you're Muslim. He's being, look at the abuse he's, endearing, he's undergoing. After a while, Imam Ahmad was sent home. He spent 28 months in prison. Ibrahim bin uh, Mus'ab, one of the guards who, who, that, that, that was kept by Imam Ahmad, says that he had not seen anyone more brave than Imam Ahmad. Yet, they, he, Imam Ahmad had no care for them. He couldn't care less what their opinion was of him. Muhammad bin Ismail bin Samina says that he had heard from certain eyewitnesses that Imam Ahmad uh, was beaten so severely that one stroke would have made an elephant cry. Another eyewitness said Imam Ahmad was fasting on the day and the Shia, the, the, the Sharia permit, they said the Shia permits you to outwardly accept the doctrine of the Caliph, meaning just say that you believe in it. But Imam Ahmad paid no attention. And then they, uh, when he came, uh, when he became too thirsty, he asked for some water. A tumbler of water was brought to him, which he took in his hand, but then he returned back. So he remembered he was fasting. You know, subhanAllah, someone once asked him, why didn't you just say, why didn't you just say that I believe, that I believe? That's it, just say I believe in what you're saying. And Imam Ahmad said, one of the scholars is saying this to him, just fake that you believe and just get out of this situation. He said, look, if I say this, I know that the Quran is not a creation of Allah. Allah knows that. But all these people outside of my jail cell, all these people in Baghdad, all these people who follow me, if they hear I say it, they will change their beliefs. And I will not compromise their hereafter. I'm willing to take the pain and abuse. This is, this is, this is steadfastness. One of his sons um, um, had mentioned that his father had, um, when his father died, when they went to, to, to um, wash him, they could see the scars of the marks and the lashes that was on his body. Um, Abu al-Abbas al-Raqi, he describes that people wanted to save Imam Ahmad from the sufferings in the prison. Um, um, where he was confined and recited the hadith that allows him to, 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 to save his life. And then he said, but what do you say of the hadith transmitted by Khabbab, which says that there were people of old who were sawed into two, but did not renounce their faith. You know, many of us know these hadith of suffering and trial and difficulty. We know them, but he acted on them. We know the hadith, we turn a blind eye, unfortunately. He acted upon them. And they realize that he's not going to change. Imam Ahmad, rahmatullahi alayhi, um, you know, subhanAllah, one of the most interesting things that happens, you know, uh, in the life of Imam Ahmad was that before he passes away, uh, Mu'tasim dies. And when Mu'tasim dies, um, the new caliph actually believed in... Um, Excuse me. The new caliph believed in the orthodox opinion of Ahl Sunnah and Jama'ah that what? Quran is not created. And the new caliph used to send, um, uh, this is Mutawakkil now, he used to send gifts to Imam Ahmad and he used to take care of him. Um, 
Yeah, the wathiq. After Mu'atasim, wathiq takes over, and after wathiq, mutawakkil takes over. Now, this is very interesting. Mutawakkil believed um, that he was a good man. And so he would give gifts to Imam Ahmad. Remember I mentioned that story about giving the, the, the money, the gold on the back of uh, the, the donkey? Imam Ahmad was often hosted by uh, Mutawakkil and, and uh, he was served dishes that were very valuable, 120 silver coin dishes. Um, uh, and yet he would not touch the food. Now, what's interesting is that Mutawakkil Billah, he would send stipends to Imam Ahmad to take care of Imam Ahmad, but Imam Ahmad refused to take any of it. And he fell seriously ill at the age of 77. And a number of people came, were very, very large. He was, he was all of the beating that took place, he would urinate blood in his life because of it. And, uh, and he had so much grief that he had ulcers in his stomach. And now Mutawakkil was trying to make up for it by treating him well. And Imam Ahmad would say, I don't know what, which was a greater trial. The beating that he took from Ma'moon Mu'atasim and Wathiq Billah or from Mutawakkil Billah treating him well. And I'll explain why later. Okay, so now I can hold what to. So I've been given a divine sign to stop talking, I think. So let's just close. Um, 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 yeah. Just, you know, he, he, he becomes sick. He's very seriously ill at the age of 77. So many people are coming to see him in his homes that they had to sort of shut down the streets and police had to control the traffic. Uh, the bazaars were overcrowded by people just waiting for him. And uh, he passes away, rahmatullahi alayhi, um, 
really one of the greatest men to ever exist uh, in, in, in our deen at the, in uh, 241 after Hijrah. So he was born in 164. He passes 241 to so live 77 years old. Um, just like Basra all came out to pray for Hassan Basri, Baghdad all came out to pray for um, for Imam uh, uh, Ahmad bin Hamdul rahmatullahi alayhi uh, to, to pray the janazah over him. And if you want to know what that means, Mutawakkil Billah asked, we need to see, let's estimate by the number of people there, how many people were there. So they sort of counted like the number of rows and everything. They had to do this estimation. And it was, it, it was stated that approximately 800,000 men came out to pray his janazah prayer and 60,000 women. I mean, we're talking numbers near 1 million people, 900, almost 900,000 people, 860,000 people came out to pray his janazah prayer. So, you know, Allah honors the people who are special to him, sometimes in this world, but also in the hereafter. So we'll close over here. Um, we ask Allah to, you know, bless Imam Ahmed, uh, illuminate his grave and expand his grave as far as I can see and make it a, a, place, of, a place of paradise in this world before the hereafter. وأنت ربنا لا إله إلا أنت سبحانك إنا كنا من الظالمين أنت الغني ونحن فقراء إليك أنت أنت القوي ونحن ضعفاء إليك ارحمنا واغفرنا وارحمنا أنت خير الراحمين اللهم اجعلنا من عتقاء شهر رمضان اللهم اجعلنا من عتقاء شهر رمضان اللهم اجعلنا من عتقاء شهر رمضان اللهم آت نفوسنا تقواها وزكها أنت خير من زكاها أنت وليها ومولاها ربنا لا تزق قلوبنا بعد تهديتنا وهب لنا من لدنك رحمة إنك أنت الوهاب ربنا آتنا في الدنيا حسنة وفي الآخرة حسنة قنا عذاب النار والله Uh, really, Ya Allah, another night in the nights, the final nights of Ramadan has come, Ya Allah. This now is the 24th night, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we have less than one week left of Ramadan. Oh Allah, let this be the best week of Ramadan we've ever spent in our lives, Ya Allah. And let every week of Ramadan after in years to come, Ya Allah, be better than this, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let us devote ourselves in complete sincerity and complete submission without any distraction, Ya Allah, to, the, to you in these days and nights, Ya Allah. Allah, forgive us for the mistakes we made in Ramadan, Ya Allah. The sins we've committed in Ramadan, forgive them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, please, Ya Allah, let us learn from the, from the lessons of these great men and women, Ya Allah. The opulence and the lavishness of this world never distract them, Ya Allah. They never sought anything but your pleasure, Ya Allah. Make us amongst them, Ya Allah. Make us amongst those who seek no pleasure but your pleasure, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, make us amongst those, Ya Allah, who turn to you, Ya Allah, in happiness and in difficulty, Ya Allah, in hardship and in ease, Ya Allah, in grief and, 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 and in every state, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to you, Ya Allah, and we ask you to remove all the difficulties upon us, Ya Allah. The depression, the anxiety, the suicidal 
thoughts, the, the, all of these uh, mental uh, health uh, uh, issues that, that are now coming to light, Ya Allah, remove them, Ya Allah. The illnesses, the viruses, the bacteria, the, 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 the broken bones, the torn ligaments, all the physical ailments that, that, that afflict us, Ya Allah, cure them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, the, 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 the trauma, Ya Allah, that, that, that has occurred, Ya Allah, from all of us being so distant from the Prophet has left us, Ya Allah, in a lurch. Oh Allah, make us such that we are able to constantly strive to be in emulation of your Prophet Ya Allah. Oh Allah, these individuals, Ya Allah, they gave everything for you, Ya Allah. Let us give at least one thing for you, Ya Allah. Let us offer one true prayer for you, or one true fast for you, or one true dollar or even penny in sadaqah, pure for you and for you alone, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, on the day of judgment, Ya Allah, we do not know where we will go. We turn to you in these last 10 days and nights, Ya Allah, when you have promised to free the the free uh, the people who are bound to hell, Ya Allah, from your hell, from their hellfire, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah, we know our sins may have made us bound to hell, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, free us from hell, Ya Allah. Free us from hell, Ya Allah. Free us from hell, Ya Allah. Never let us do uh, be amongst the people of hell. Let never let us never do the actions of the people of hell, Ya Allah. Take us away, Ya Allah, from anything that may draw us near to hell, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if we've engaged in interest ever in our life, Ya Allah, remove from us, Ya Allah. And let's never touch interest. We've been engaged in any type of fornication. Ya Allah, remove from our lives, Ya Allah, and forgive us for it, Ya Allah. Never let us engage in it. If you ever engage in any disrespect, Ya Allah, to our parents or elders or people whom you love or anyone, Ya Allah, let them forgive us, Ya Allah. And oh Allah, you forgive us as well, friend. Let us never return to it, Ya Allah. If you've ever, Ya Allah, missed any prayer, missed any fast, missed zakat, missed anything, Ya Allah, oh Allah, forgive us for it, Ya Allah, and let us make it up, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, take us out of debt, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, take us out of debt, Ya Allah. Take us out of debt, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, take us out of debt to you. Any missed prayers, fast, etc. We owe you, Ya Allah. Let us take Take us out of it, Ya Allah. Take us out of debt to our brothers and sisters in this in this in, in creation, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, if we've backed or slander about them, Ya Allah, let us repay that debt that we owe them, Ya Allah, through doing goodness of this world or earning their or or, or earning uh, their forgiveness, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, the financial debt, take us out of that as well, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, in this confusing era of COVID, Ya Allah, where people don't know what to do, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant grant us true guidance, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let this just as I began, let it end, Ya Allah. Let us pray eat with one another. Let us embrace our parents and our in our and our grandparents, Ya Allah. Let us be able to go to the Masajid again, Ya Allah. Let us visit your Haramain Sharifain, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to Ya Allah. We ask Ya Allah. Allah, the Father of Mana Asfar, Ya Allah. He's very sick, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant him cure, Ya Allah. Grant him cure, Ya Allah. Grant him cure, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant the family the best at this time and ease at this time, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah. Anyone else who sought dua from us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, oh Allah. Accept whatever they seek, Ya Allah. Whatever we seek in our hearts, Ya Allah, you know, accept it from us, Ya Allah. Allah, forgive our parents, Ya Allah. Forgive our siblings, Ya Allah. Forgive our spouses, Ya Allah. Forgive our children, Ya Allah. Forgive our, forgive our aunts, Ya Allah. Our uncles, Ya Allah. Our grandparents, Ya Allah. Our great grandparents and above, Ya Allah. Our grandchildren, great grandchildren below, Ya Allah. Our, our nieces and nephews, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, forgive them and bless them and guide them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, forgive our neighbors, Ya Allah. Grant them Islam in their hearts, Ya Allah. Grant us the ability to bring Islam to them, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, let us never be embarrassed of our deen, Ya Allah. Why? Should we be embarrassed of our deen? This is the best deen from the greatest prophet, the greatest book, and of course, our Lord Allah, you are the greatest, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we should never be embarrassed of this, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, grant us grant us all good in this world and the hereafter, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, we turn to Ya Allah, whatever is halal and tayyib within our hearts that we forgot to ask, we should have asked, that we remembered that we did not have an opportunity to ask. Whatever your prophet sought from you, the Sahaba sought from you, the, the ulama sought from you, the Sulaha sought from you, oh Allah, grant that for all of us, Ya Allah. Oh Allah, purify us and bless us, Ya Allah. وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين الحمد لله جزاكم okay إن شاء الله that's for tonight 
I apologize, you know, shouldn't go this long. Tomorrow we'll cover Abu Hassan al Ash'ari, Rahmatullahi alayhi. Uh,